Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome to our first official review episode of the Big Gay Book Club. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm your other host, Amy. And this week, we are going to be talking about a book we both loved immensely, The House in the Cerulean Sea. By T.J. Klune. So yeah, let's get right into it, Amy. Yeah, uh, for those of you who haven't read the book yet, uh, don't fret. The first part of this review is going to be completely spoiler-free. So if you haven't read it, just make sure you listen out for our announcement of when we are going to go into that spoiler territory. All right, let's get to it. Let's get to it. See you soon, everybody. Okay, and we're back. We're back now, ready to talk about this week's book, The House in the Cerulean Sea, written by T.J. Klune and published in March of 2020. And I looked that up and I had to like stop and think about what were people experiencing when they first started reading this book and what was that? That had been pretty wild. Yeah, it was the pandemic, right? Yeah, it March was the pandemic, yeah. It, that's when I started going into quarantine. And, like, I really, I it's funny, because in one of my students, like, graduation speeches this year, he said, I really didn't want to talk about the pandemic, but, like, I don't think we have that freedom anymore. Like, it's yeah. just part of our lives. And, like, it's just something that is going to be here forever. But... I bring that up because I kind of see this book as escapism, which I think could have been very beneficial to people in that time of their lives. Absolutely. I also see it as escapism um, early on. And this isn't a spoiler, but there is this um, small detail of this mouse pad. And it's just something I think any one of us could have a picture of a very tropical looking scene with the the phrase uh don't you wish you were here and i think that just really encompasses the feel of march 2020 when i know i struggled to feel like i could go outside safely and felt very cooped up but didn't really have any other outlet yeah and like that mouse pad could have any picture on it right like it could be mm-hmm. a beach or it could be a forest or a could mountain be a mountain or a lake yep And I think that would be something a lot of people related to. Yeah. Uh, And then I wanted to get right into, because this is something I find really interesting personally, but what drew you to this book, Amy? Why don't you start? Because you were the one. (laughs) Okay, I'll go. You told me you were reading it and really liked it and thought I would like it. And so it's like, I've seen it before. Um, I think the title's really interesting. It doesn't really say too much, but again, it does kind of evoke that mouse pad. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was like, you know what? Okay, I'll give it a try. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it goes without saying, Amy is like one of my best friends. So she tells me a book recommendation, like I trust it wholeheartedly and I'll jump right in. So our relationship is kind of perfect for that. And what drew me into The House in the Cerulean Sea is... I actually judge books by their covers. Oh, for <laughs> sure. Why would they and have covers if they weren't meant to be judged? 
And sometimes at bookstores by their spine. Mm -hmm. And honestly, this book is just gorgeous. I kind of wish I had it in hardback because of how gorgeous it is. The cover art is amazing. Um, And listen to this. This is really what, like, I read this and I bought it instantly. This is a kind of like one of those reviewer quotes on the front page. Mm -hmm. I loved it. It is like being wrapped in a big gay blanket. Simply Mm -hmm. perfect. V.E. Schwab, number one New York Times bestselling author. I read that Alkalade and I was like, well, I guess I'm buying this book and reading it because I want to be wrapped in a big gay blanket. <laughs> big gay blanket sounds like the coziest. Yeah. And I, I think that actually, having read the book now, it describes it very perfectly. It does. I also think that the cover art, I do have the hardcover edition. I got it from the library and it's just it's got so much personality to it. You know, the the way that the angles and the lines, the colors that are used, the really like striking purple clouds that are behind the title, just the font itself that was chosen. Like mm-hmm. I think all of the design aesthetic choices that were made for this book um, are very purposefully eye-catching and gel together in a way that just really, really evokes that sense of like, you know, vacation and mystique and getting away from it all and like finding something when you're there. And a question related to the cover. Mm -hmm. Did you ever find yourself like getting descriptions of the setting of this book and then going back to the cover and being like, oh, that's that or that's that? Oh, 100%. Because I really... 100%. I liked that like there were actual in book, like in plot related elements of the cover that um, it helps you visualize the setting. Like the author did a really good job. TJ Klune did an excellent job mm-hmm. of establishing that setting and like getting it in your mind's eye. But the cover helped a lot too. And you know how books sometimes like have different printings with different covers. Mm-hmm. I don't think he should ever have a different cover because it's perfect. It's perfect. It really is. And there were details about it that I actually didn't notice until I had read certain passages in the book and then went back to the cover and said, Oh, you know, that is here. That is a part. And so I just think Mm -hmm. whoever, whoever did the cover design for this just did a really magnificent job. And yeah. And to get us started, I actually was wanted to ask you, would Mm -hmm. you do the honors of reading the um, short synopsis on the back of the book to let our listeners know what this book is about if they've not read it yet? Absolutely. I'm, I don't have a back of the book. I have a lot of quotes on the back of my, my oh, version. Okay. So I'm going to read the interior flap. That Oh, there you go. Yeah. I forgot hardcover versus softcover. Yeah. So one of the beautiful things that I learned about the way that books are published, especially hardcover books, is that when you open them up, you always have those colored cover pages and they're usually blank. Sometimes they might have a little pattern or design on them. Um, sometimes they have a map, but they're, they're intended to feel like curtains. Like when you're sitting down at a theater and the curtains rise and then the show begins, when you open up the first cover of the book, you see these curtain pages And then when you turn those over, you see the title and then the story begins. And I just think it's really, really beautiful that we have a synopsis on hardcover books that you can read on the interior flap. And it already gives you like this, this invitation into turning the page. I'm going to buy all my books in hardcover from now on (laughs) because I loved that description so much. I'd never thought of that. Yeah. All right. So here's what the interior flap says. A magical island. A dangerous task, a burning 
secret. Linus Baker is a by-the-book caseworker in the department in in charge of magical youth. At 40, he lives in a tiny house with a devious cat and his old records for company. But his quiet life is about to change. Linus is summoned by extremely upper management and given a curious and highly classified assignment. Travel to an orphanage on a distant island and determine whether six dangerous magical children are so dangerous, in fact, that they're likely to bring about the end of days. When Linus arrives at that strangest of islands, he's greeted by a series of mysterious figures, the most mysterious of which is Arthur Parnassus, the master of the orphanage. As Linus and Arthur grow closer, Linus discovers the master would do anything to keep the children safe, even if it means the world has to burn. Or worse, his secret comes to light. The House in the Cerulean Sea is an enchanting love story, masterfully told, about the profound experience of discovering an unlikely family in an unexpected place, and realizing that family is yours. I don't know why, but I got chills as you were reading that, and I think it might also speak to why I wanted to read this book. Can I tell you a secret? Please. I never read that before. I You hadn't? I do not read synopses before I start oh, books. Okay. That's <laughs> I, fair. Sometimes so you judge books by the covers. I tend yep. to judge them by the synopsis. And if okay. if it is something that turns me off, I will not read the book. And so I realized like it's not generally written by the author. It's written by um maybe somebody else from the publishing team. Mm-hmm. And so it's not the clearest indication. Like there this is a very well written one and I feel like there's actually so many connections that are made. I've read other ones that are just less less great. And yeah. Yeah, I don't I can't I can't draw a parallel to it, but reading through that again right now, like there's so many tiny little hints and secrets hidden in that synopsis that we understand now. And I just, I love that. It's very, very well written. And so I am kind of glad that I I waited to read it until now, but even if you read it beforehand, reading it after the book is done, you get so much more out of it. And one other striking thing about it, there's not really any indication that this is a queer novel in that writing like it talks about a love story it talks about a relationship between linus and arthur but not Mm -hmm. the extent of that relationship which we'll get into later Mm -hmm. um but like besides the big gay blanket on the front a person seeing this book might not even know what they're in for which is i like yeah i don't think i'm looking right now um i'm not seeing except the author bio on the back being queer himself that's the only I think this, uh, TJ Klune, I think his agenda, like literary agenda, is for queer representation. Yes. So if you knew the author, which I do want to now read some of his other books, I think he just released a new one um, called Wolf Song nice. that I'm really interested in reading at some point. Um, but I know a lot of, not a lot, all of his books in some way feature queer um, stories. Excellent. Uh, and then what I wanted to do next was, because mm-hmm. at this point we're trying to kind of convince people that this book is worth reading, or maybe in some cases not, we might eventually read books that we aren't jiving with or we don't like, mm-hmm. and we'll let you know that. But I think based on our excitement and what we've said so far, I think <laughs> you can all probably assume that we loved this book. But what would you, how would you rate this book? And we're going to kind of just use a really simple scale. We're not going to give it numbers. We're not like video game reviewers. 
where we're just really going to recommend it or not recommend it and tell you maybe a little bit about why non-spoilery. I would recommend. I would recommend this book um, just wholeheartedly. And I think it is best going into it with uh, just a really an open mind ready for the journey that's about to happen. I actually definitely 100% recommend this to any reader, really, um, with just one little caveat in that it, I feel like it's, you have to go into it kind of having an open mind in that, not in the sense about its content, like it being a queer novel, in the sense that it's written in a very surreal way. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the descriptions and stuff are not... I guess maybe they are unrealistic. Like, we're going to get more into it when we get into spoiler territory. But, like, I really picture movies or books like Matilda or Umbrella Academy or stuff like that where there's just, like, these very extra representations of settings and characters and whatnot. Like, they're all bigger than themselves which I thought was a really fun read personally but I know it could turn some people off too so that's yeah I I I highly recommend it in the end I I like that a lot and I think the writing was actually one of the the things that I really enjoyed about the book so why don't we talk about that for a little bit because I agree with you I think extra is a great term to describe it I would also say it's tending towards the absurd yes and it's it's very obvious like within the first few paragraphs you know that this writing style is not going to be like a lot of the other books that you're reading I was reading a couple books before this one and as soon as I I started this book you know the other books they had been great they had been um more like slice of life small stakes but still felt very large lots of heart books this one the the way that the narrator describes the protagonist it's there's a distance you're not right in Linus Baker's headspace per se it's a little bit more of you know looking on from from higher up above and there's this expansive feel to the writing and to the world that makes it feel just vast and i i really appreciated some of the more absurdist details um my favorite is and it's it's mentioned in the the synopsis for the book but um extremely upper management just the fact that it's named extremely upper management is just so tongue-in-cheek it's it's so meta it's just beautiful and and everything about this book has that almost fairy tale like like morality tale vibe without it actually being too on the nose it's honestly perfectly smart in how he does it. Mm-hmm. It's just like your example right there. I don't want to get into really any other examples right now, but mm-hmm. just that, that, then that, then that, and that again. Like he had just, there's all these little things in the book where he comes up with these names or descriptions that are really clever and really neat. And this is mm-hmm. actually a book I, my partner can definitely attest that like I laughed out loud reading it maybe probably at least 20 times because of just how well it was written and like you were saying earlier about jokes and how they can be planned and written it's just like oh my goodness I just I I laughed a lot like I was reading this book one night when we were out 
and I was in this like we, we were at a Magic the Gathering thing, mm-hmm. and I was had some downtime, so I was reading, and I just I laughed so loud. I felt kind of <laughs> self conscious about it, but like I couldn't help it because I got to this like small part in the book that was just so well written and so funny. It's just like that comes from how funny the characters are and how mm-hmm. like like funny the like it's not a it's not a like a movie or anything, but how good the physical comedy was sometimes too. Mm-hmm. And it's like the surprising turns of phrases that you get yes. in this book. That it's just all credited to to TJ Klune's mastery over the oh written word. Oh, I actually we're when we get into our like actual like favorite passages and stuff. Mm-hmm. I might have to. I forgot to mark it up, but there is one in here that I hopefully thumbing through it can find later because it's just it's just like there's so many parts where just like maybe a couple sentences how he describes something or this like as you were saying this um uh tongue-in-cheek way he said it it's just very very good mm-hmm. um and then i think we wanted to get into what are if you if at all any were there any things that you felt the book lacked or you didn't enjoy overall that's a good question because I just kind of accepted the book as it was. Like there, maybe some of the distance that was in the perspective, like in the in the the point of view of the narrator, felt a little bit too distant at times, and it felt like it was difficult to know exactly who the protagonist was. But I think beyond that, like the the quote at the front of the hardcover book says. This book is very close to perfect by Mm -hmm. Sean McGuire, and I think it's very accurate. I think that's a very accurate statement. And I overall, I there aren't really like specific things I disliked in terms of like characterization or setting or writing, but I think there were a couple plot points that kind of either didn't really I wouldn't say annoyed me, but I felt like they kind of felt fairly um like contrived almost and that yeah I kind of saw that happening I kind of wish it hadn't I wish it had diverted my expectations a little because this is how a lot of these types of books go mm-hmm. but that's not to its detriment like it told a really good story really well um and that's maybe just a little bit on me for um for being so well read Chris <laughs> <laughs> yeah I I but I like don't even like that's like me rating the book a 10 and still like this there's just one tiny thing like I still really love it I'm with you I tend to judge books by their how predictable they feel to me and how uh sometimes conventional they are but I do think that that's part of the morality tale vibe that this book was going for um to me there are some moments where there are some scenes that I think are intentionally included to be satisfying to read because, um, and this goes back to a lot of the books that I read as a child where, you know, the ones that would make me stay up at night, the latest daydreaming about if I were in the book, how I would have handled things. A lot of it was, you know, there are injustices that these characters experience. And what you really, really want to see, especially when you're a child, is you want to see some kind of comeuppance or some kind of justice where, um, you know, there can be confrontation and the protagonist is the one who comes out winning. And that can't always happen because otherwise, you know, the books would be too predictable and too the same and there wouldn't be, you know, that arc 
and the really satisfying feeling when you do finally reach the climax and, you know, the protagonists start to win. But I did get a sense of that in this book where there are some moments, um, especially ones that that deal with more, you know, prejudice, where you just really want to see people stand up and say, this isn't right. And I think that there were some very satisfying moments in this book that came as a result of that. And that does feel like maybe, maybe it is a little bit predictable, predictable. Maybe it is a little bit conventional. Um, but I also think it was pretty novel to have that in a book that is queer. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it was coming, but you still cheer and you still cry and you still care and you still feel all these feelings because it just, it was written in such a way that made you like, that's also the, in my opinion, the, um, good tell of a good writer is Mm -hmm. that sometimes you are supposed to expect this stuff happening And Mm -hmm. sometimes when it happens, that's a good thing because the writer set this up for you to get that payoff. And I think that happened a lot in this book in some predictable ways and also some unpredictable ways. Precisely. Yeah, I think all of the promises that T.J. Klune made at the start of the book all were held up by the end of it. I don't think there was anything um, that we were expecting that was a letdown, at least not for me. I I didn't have any false expectations And um, just felt really, by the end of the book, I felt like, you know, that was a really solid experience. I'm very happy you trusted my recommendation and that this is the first book we're doing because I loved it so much. Oh, don't you wish you were here? Yes, I do. And we are here. (laughs) We are here. We've made it. Yes. And before we get into the spoiler territory, which is going to be happening very soon, I just wanted to end by saying that this is ultimately a story about found family and finding your place in the world and kind of not accepting that the way your life is has to be the way that it is. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in life get into that rut. They're nine to five, their routine. Mm -hmm. And this is a story about breaking out of that routine and exploring places that you might feel are scary or, um, unattainable for you, but doing it anyways, because either you have to, or because you want to. And I relate to that a lot, which is another reason I liked this book a lot. Yeah. It's really profound. Uh, is there anything else you want to touch upon before we start the real deep discussion? I think I'm ready for some spoilers. Perfect. So if you have not read the book yet, you should stop listening here and come back once you're done and maybe hopefully we'll talk about all the awesome stuff that you want us to okay we are now entering the spoiler territory And the way that we're going to discuss it today is we're going to start with um, a breakdown of some of the different aspects of the book, um, starting with the setting, and then we're going to talk about the main characters, and then we're going to talk about the story. So where does this story begin, Amy? This story, I'm flipping to the first page... 
actually it starts as a little bit of um almost like a prologue i would say but it's not it's the first chapter and it starts in an orphanage and i didn't know how important this orphanage was going to be but linus baker he's a caseworker he works for the department in charge of magical youth and we basically see him in action observing how these children are being treated in an orphanage um and all of these kids they are magical it's one of the things this book does really well it just kind of tosses you in and you just pick up world building details as you go um but all these magical youth they could have some some fancy powers they might have uh some more like supernatural or paranormal um attributes to them you know they might be fairies and i think he did a really good job of showing that Linus is kind of the normal center of the book and then everything around him is kind of odd. Um, so yeah, we start there and then we, and I think we... Go ahead. I think that's an excellent way to start this book too. I'm glad I'm glad you actually scrolled there and, or scrolled. I'm glad <laughs> you actually flipped there and saw this because it's such a good way to key the reader into who Linus is and what he does because what he does is such an integral part of this story. Mm-hmm. It's the whole driving impetus behind the plot. Yep, exactly. Um, and it also, you have like you have a little bit of a stake in his decision, in his ultimate um, recommendation is what they call it, for this orphanage. So we know what the stakes are as the story progresses and he starts the um, observation he does. Uh, yeah, that determining... Is the, determining whether the orphanage should remain open or if it should close. Yeah. So uh, we were going to talk about the settings that this story takes place in first. And then we're going to talk about um, the main characters that we felt kind of deserved the uh, attention. And then we're just going to essentially pick our favorite parts to talk about. We're not going to really go we'll probably you'll probably get a natural understanding of the plot as we talk about the setting and the characters but then we're just gonna pick like quotes or characters to dive more deeply into or scenes or ideas or themes to talk about towards the end so i kind of really enjoyed this description a lot in the book and one of the big settings like not the biggest it's probably one of the smaller settings in the book but that is Linus's house in the city. Mm-hmm. And do you remember what city this was specifically? I don't. Do you? No, but it was like some like UK city, right? I I had very strong UK vibes throughout. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's just this is where that surrealism starts to come in because this setting, this city that Linus lives in, is always raining. I don't always. think there's a single point in the whole book that Linus is um, in this city, that it is not raining. And we get a lot of details about Linus forgetting his umbrella and Linus having to wait for the bus because it's 20 minutes late and Linus um, having sunflowers in front of his house and it's the yellows, the only pop of color on the whole street. Mm -hmm. And his annoying neighbor who... um, always checks in on him every time he gets home and asks Linus to keep his darn cat out of her backyard. Um, And the house itself does feel very homey in its description. 
It does. Uh, it's very Linus. It's exactly. very Linus who is set in his ways. And his ways are listening to records every night, cleaning his house in a very specific way. Um, not make, having friends. Not having friends. <laughs> he doesn't even get along with. He doesn't even get along with his cat. I love his cat, though. I do, too. Calliope, what a, what a beaut. Yes. And eating a salad for dinner every night because he's watching his weight. Yep. Or... Um, going to bed and waking up at a certain time. And like I was talking about earlier, a routine that he's mm-hmm. in that honestly, extremely upper management doesn't ex- a wake up call for him and gets him out of that routine, which I think if he weren't so good at his job and p- was put on this assignment, he mm-hmm. might've been stuck in this rut for the rest of his life, which is kind of, I, you understand that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just that momentum and the inertia is just going to keep him going. And unless he has that outside force, there's just nothing to stop him from doing what he's already comfortable doing. And what is that outside force, Jasp? Uh, It is that extremely upper management. But if I could go back just for one second to Linus's house and talk about the beautiful irony that it is that he takes care of these sunflowers in a city that never stops raining. And these sunflowers are not ever seeing the sun. And, uh, you know, we learn later on that they died from being overwatered. And um, I just think it's it's very telling. A lot of times in stories where a person resides, like their house is a representation of who they are, these characters. Um, I think most famously you see it with uh, Pride and Prejudice, with Netherfield and Mr. Darcy. And understanding Netherfield is the way to understand who Mr. Darcy is on the inside. And I think that's what you get here with Linus Baker's, you know, quaint little domicile where it's, it's very him. The music is very him. The sunflower is seeking the sun and not sure how to find it. That's him. That's his arc. And there's a lot of discussion about how it is his and how he saved up for it and he bought it. And it might Mm -hmm. not be much, but it is his little corner of the world that he gets to call his own. Like he's single, he owns a house that is his, which is kind of, I mean, in today's age, a pretty big feat for somebody who is single living in a city to be able to own their own home. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. And where does Linus work? Linus works at, uh, I pronounce it Dicomi. Yeah. I I, I go back and forth. Dicomi. Yeah. What is it? It stands for... The Department in Charge of Magical Youth. And there's yep. also a Dicoma, which is the Department in Charge of Magical Adults. But uh, specifically, Linus works for the one in charge of overseeing the children who are staying at orphanages because they have nowhere else to go. Because it, this world, it makes it very clear that the world is inhospitable for magical beings. Mm-hmm. And this, like, we see... Uh, this setting a lot in the early stages of this book because we get a really good sense of the sort of working conditions that Linus has here. And I guess all of his co-workers do too. This very surreal type of setting where all the desks are in a row and they're not allowed any personal artifacts on their desks. And if they're not working on their work for more than a couple seconds at a time, they're going to get scolded and their demerits are going to go in their file and Linus has no demerits and it would 
at that stage in his character development, the thought of ever getting a demerit kind of drove him to be the best at his job as he could be. Absolutely. And I I think it's really not until he gets called in by extremely upper management that we get to see just how good he is at his job, like how rare it is that I think it said he worked there for 17 years and he didn't have a single demerit. And you could have, I think, up to, was it five a week or something? Or there was a certain number where after that threshold, I think you were fired. And he got really Mm -hmm. concerned about that because this is all he knew. It was how he sustained himself. It's how he could afford his house and to take care of his cat. Um, And here, here he is finally being rewarded. Although it's it's presented as a very scary thing. Yeah, you, you said that in the perfect way because that's like the whole sense you get from this book when I don't remember her name, but essentially his manager stops by his desk and very rudely, very like inquisitively also because she's like, why are you hearing from extremely upper management? What could they want with you? What did you do this time, Linus? But it Ms. Turns... Jenkins. Her name oh is Ms. God. Jenkins, the supervisor. Perfect name for who she is. Uh-huh. Um, but he gets this letter from Extremely Upper Management with like almost no details about why he's being summoned. So then he also has this entire night before that meeting to just stress about what it could be. And I'm a teacher, and in my profession, I've actually gotten a couple of those emails from my principal. It's like, hey, we have to meet tomorrow in the morning to discuss this. And, like, completely buries the lead and tells, gives me no details about what it is. It's like, am I getting rewarded? Am I losing my job? What is it? Like, yeah. So that's That's actually, like, very relatable. Yeah. And I think, too, the anxiety that Linus feels is a very strong part of who he is like he he delves into those anxious uh wavelengths quite frequently and it influences a lot of what he does in the book like he has almost crippling anxiety at certain moments where there are things he very clearly would would like to do or would like to try but he has this fear that's holding him back Mm -hmm. so we already kind of talked about it but he goes to extremely upper management and that kind of propels him to the next big setting location in the book, which is a picturesque town on the ocean, mm-hmm. a place where it actually isn't raining. And I kind of love the description of him on the train to get there. Mm-hmm. And it's like a six hour journey and the rain didn't stop until like three hours in. So you imagine essentially this perpetual storm cloud that hovered over his life and he's finally getting out from under it as he approaches this town Mm -hmm. and i think there's also something very special about it being a train ride i don't know that's just maybe me and my love of trains and like i also love trains the thought of like taking a train from new england to western canada like just excites me and probably how i'll travel when i'm retired and can travel because I, I think it sounds really cool. So I, I liked that. I've done a sleeper car a couple times, and there is something really, like, rewarding about the experience. Like, if you kind of feel like you're traveling like they used to in the past. And mm-hmm. it's it's just another way of looking at the world. Different kind of pace. Yeah, so Linus arrives at this town on the ocean, kind of towards the tail end of its um, touristy season. So it actually is described he's the only one who gets off at this stop. 
and he has Calliope, his cat, in a carrier, and he has his suitcase, and um, he kind of gets picked up and gets driven through this tra- town, and I, like, I can just picture it in my head with how it was described. I see, like, nautical stripes and cute <laughs> candy stores and brick mm-hmm. pathways and a sandy beach and a wooden dock and, like, a a red and white lighthouse near the dock. Like just, I don't even know if that was described, but it's just like he did such a good job of describing this place. Your brain kind of fills in the rest with what you imagine would be there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then from there, Linus takes a ferry with a rather ownery ferry owner to Merle. Merle, thank you, to yeah. his ultimate destination, which is the main setting for the majority of this book. We're both conflicting on how to pronounce <laughs> this. So if anybody <laughs> out there knows for certain how to pronounce this, please email us. Um, we'll give you more information about that at the end of the podcast. Um, but I say Marcius. I say Marcius. Yeah, it's M-A-R-S-Y-A-S. But it's Marcius or Marcius, however you want to say it, island. And this is where that orphanage is we were talking about, where um, Linus is tasked by extremely upper management to go and do this a month. This is what's on the front cover. Exactly. He's here to do a month's worth of observations of this orphanage to see if he recommends it remain open. And the extreme upper management was very clear that they're as interested in how the children are faring as the own the owner, the kind of overseer of the this, master, the master yeah. of this household. And I think the biggest, I mean, Marcius itself is a character almost in this book because it has such a personality compared to the rest of the settings in this book. So Mm -hmm. I think it kind of lends itself for us to get into discussing the characters that make this book so special. Yeah. Um, This might be a little bit unusual, but I actually want to start with Zoe Chapelwhite, Ms. Chapelwhite. And I think that actually works out well because I didn't really get into it in the setting discussion, but she's the one who meets, he meets first when he gets to the town, right? Yeah, she's the one who drives him from the train station over to the ferry. And then, um, like, we kind of get a chance to see how their 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 relationship, their friendship blossoms. It's very rocky at the beginning. She doesn't really like him. She doesn't really want to talk to him. Um, and later on, you learn it's because she, and maybe this is why the island itself is so almost personified, but she is the the sprite who care is the caretaker and the inhabitor of this island. Like that's her island. It's her home. It's magical. Everything about, you know, where this orphanage is magical. And uh, Zoe, who can be cantankerous at times. Uh, but in the best way. In the best way, in a very protective way. Yes. Like she, she does everything out of the center of her heart. Mm-hmm. And I loved their initial interactions because, like, Linus is very smart and he kind of clocks her as the forest sprite she is very early on. Mm-hmm. But she's, like, super, almost like, you you said it well in that she's protective, but she's also kind of playful with him and, like, making jokes about his appearance or um, his, like, cat or other things like that. But not in, like... Had, a, yeah, go ahead. 
not an antagonizing way, kind of just in a, that's, that's the type of person she is. I, and I, I got a very like almost trickster. Yes. Responsible trickster vibe. Like she's trying to, to purposefully trick him and he, he is clever. He's smart, you know, more than I think people assume. And that's, that's another thing about this book is a lot of assumptions get made by by one character about another, um, by whole groups of people about another group of people. And um, part of what this book is about is setting down those assumptions and really seeing the people who are in front of you for who they are. And I, I, that's one of the central themes of this whole book, I feel like, too, which is I'm glad we get such an early um, shot of that with Zoe. Mm-hmm. Um, and we already talked a lot about Linus, He's a caseworker for Daikami, and he is sent on this. Uh, he is sent on this mission to assess Marcia's orphanage, um, and he's like, "There's only really one early uh, indication that he's queer, and that's when he returns home from his um, day at work, and he's chatting with his neighbor." Um, and she mentions how Linus needs to settle down and get married. And then it makes a comment, oh, oh, wait, I, I remember. And then makes a comment about how well her um, nephew mm-hmm. is also single and looking for a uh, spouse. And that thread is between the two of them is continued throughout the novel. But it's it's kind of in passing. It's never um, mm-hmm. outright said that. Linus is queer. Like, I don't think it's ever said that he's bisexual or gay or whatever. It's just, he No, is... I don't think there's labeled it, labeled at all, but I think it just is what it is. It is, just... exactly. Yeah. Uh, who do you want to talk about next? I feel like maybe we can talk in the order that, because one of the things Linus is given is he's given a folder. Yes. For each of the inhabitants, not including Zoe, um, but for each of the, you know, the master of the orphanage and then each of the charges who are the wards, I guess, of the mm-hmm. orphanage, um, children, magical youth who uh, were all sent here because they had nowhere else to go. And because unlike a lot of the other magical youth, they have something about them that makes them extra powerful or extra rare, something that makes them stand out. And they have all been sent to Marsyas. And from the way that extremely upper management talks about it, it's almost like it's a powder keg that's getting ready to explode. And so what Linus is supposed to do there is to see, I, I essentially thought of him as a spy in this house where he was trying to figure out on behalf of upper, the extremely upper management, like how dangerous this is, if it's going to blow up right away. And how soon they can shut it down. Because you kind of already know what Daikomi would like to do. Mm-hmm. And Linus is the one who has the open mind where he doesn't judge until he goes there to see for himself. And that's very clearly explained in Linus's characterization throughout the beginning of the novel. That he does take his job very seriously. And he doesn't make emotional connections with his um, with the magical youth he's in charge of assessing their living conditions of because he wants to make the best recommendation for the children because he does care about their well-being mm-hmm. um so do you want to talk about the children that we can start yes, with lucy? Uh, the best <laughs> so lucy's name is kind of a 
big hint as to who this character is, but mm-hmm. it is known that Lucy is the son of the devil. And mm-hmm. as we aren't supposed to say on the island, what a lot of people refer to as the Antichrist. <laughs> exactly. That is uh, verboten. We are, we are not allowed to say that here. Um, but he is, he's a six-year-old boy and he has spiders in his brain and is just all around seen outside of the island as the most dangerous thing. But when Linus goes to the island, he realizes this is just a boy. He's not a thing. He's not really a danger to anybody. He's just a boy and he wants to do the best he can and he loves his friends. They're his family and he would never do anything to harm them. And getting to know Lucy throughout the book is a delight. It is. I, between Lucy and Talia and honestly all the characters, I just, I was always wanting to read more about them and what they were doing and how they were talking to each other and how they were interacting because like these characters are written very well. Like you Mm -hmm. instantly know them and you know about them, but you also kind of understand how they're all fit into this kind of fabric this Mm -hmm. um quilt that is this family Mm -hmm. uh and i'll talk about it later but lucy is probably my favorite character in the book i think because he represents what he represents because of his like character growth that is assumed based on what we're told but also because of his character growth throughout this novel it's just like it's it's exceptional i think Mm -hmm. Like, your expectations are defied over and over again about this character. Like, you, you, oh, it's the son of the devil. I can kind of see what's going to happen. But I'll tell you, you can't. Like, Lucy's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is Talia. And I think Talia is the first She's the um, first child that Linus meets when he arrives on the island. Because yes. he gets driven up to the house by Zoe. Well, Zoe disappears on him. So he's yes. left to drive himself the rest oh, of the way. Oh, that's right. Thank you. And uh, and then when he gets out of the car, he lets out Calliope from her cage. And immediately the cat runs off. Immediately. Into the garden. Into the garden, which is Talia's garden. And she's a gnome. She's got a beard. She's got a fascination with gardening. She's like 200 plus years old, but she's still a child. And um, it's very, it's a very visceral meeting that the two of them have because, you know, as a gnome, she, and probably also influenced by Lucy, who can say some pretty dark, morbid things at times, um, but generally just to incite good natured fear in others um, as a joke. But she she would love nothing more than to uh, hit Linus over the head with her shovel and then bury him. Because, you know, anything to do with more digging, she would enjoy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I I love that. I, I could be wrong, but I believe she's the first, like, non-human magical yes. character, period. That I mean, technically, Zoe is a forest sprite, and I don't know how that works in this world. Mm-hmm. But more, like... Uh, natural She's more, human height and characteristics right precisely and and talia is you know at 200 plus years or however old um still considered immature probably around eight or nine in terms of um human, human years human development and um yeah she she looks just like a garden gnome she's i i guess like two feet tall mm-hmm. 
or so because you know it's always in the description how she she raises her hand up really high to like hug his knee or to hold his hand he has to lean forward a little bit to reach and it's just really really um interesting that there are gnomes in this world and that's just the beginning yeah that's just the beginning she also has like special parts of her outfit that she wears that also just feel like what people understand gnomes to be right Mm -hmm. if i'm remembering correctly i talia the way like she's just she's kind of like very spunky she's very um quippy She's very, very another protective character because she's super protective of her garden. She's also she extremely is. proud of her garden and also she very is. inquisitive in how she loves to learn about uh, stuff related to her garden. And actually, you know, going forward in the plot a, l- a little bit later, but Talia is really the first person who gets another like uh, one of the town's inhabitants, the town who uh, is paid off not to talk about Marsyas Orphanage or anything that's on it, any of its inhabitants, they're all terrified of what's there because they don't know what it is. And those who um, don't, like the unknown, it's, they fear the unknown. But mm-hmm. Talia is able to make inroads with uh, this woman and the town who ends up being pretty important. And I... Uh, if it weren't for their bonding, I don't know if the story would have turned out the way that it did. And it's just because she has such a pure innocence about learning more about her garden and getting the latest and greatest tools. Mm-hmm. And I think Lucy and Talia are kind of like the two most alike in yes. um, this family because they're, because of their, like their humorous nature And like you were saying, like making light of um, darker topics in like Mm -hmm. a fun, edgy sort of way. Like it reminds reminds Linus a lot that these are just kids that are saying like stupid stuff to get attention and to like Mm -hmm. make it get a rise out of the adults. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that that is like when you put it like that, it kind of like it doesn't it isn't scary anymore. Sure. The things he's saying are scary. Like he's choosing scarier topics to talk about but like he he's never once acted upon the things he says mm-hmm. and when he has the chance to he is terrified i'm thinking about when he has the nightmare mm-hmm. and the ho- horrors from his nightmare start coming alive and he's petrified at the idea that one of them could have hurt any of his family and if that's not the most heartbreaking thing <laughs> yeah and i think i that's something i want to talk about more later too uh, so we have another one of the children that live in this island. His name is Sal. And mm-hmm. I feel like his arc is very pivotal to this story as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Sal is a shapeshifter who can shapeshift into a tiny little dog. It's so um, cute. But early on, it's kind of out of his control. He does it when he gets scared. Mm-hmm. And we learn later that the reason Sal is brought to this island is because he was at a different orphanage and he was being physically abused, which mm-hmm. caused him to revert into his dog form. And his bite actually, he bit this person that was abusing him in self-defense and his bite caused that person to change as well. So that's mm-hmm. a very rare thing in this world that a shapeshifter has the ability to force their shift upon other people via um, their bite. And yeah. I like, it's never, the this book never 
at one moment makes you think that it's Sal's fault that that happened. Yes. And like, I'm kind of getting teary right now just thinking about that because I, it's like super important. It's something that happens in this sort of setting a lot in this orphanage setting. And I think TJ Klune did a good job addressing that. For sure. And I, I agree with you that Sal, his arc in the story is very pivotal because it's, He's very shy. He's very scared all the time. Linus terrifies him. And it's really not until, you know, Linus realizes that he can be scary to other people and then seeks to understand why the things he does or what he, you know, who he works for could be a frightening thing. I think that's really when his eyes are open to what Daikomi really stands for, for the people who are not human. And I think one of my favorite scenes in the whole novel involves Sal with Linus. When Sal finally feels confident enough to let Linus, because Linus, as part of his assignment, needs to observe each of the children in their like rooms in this house. And Sal finally allows Linus into his room and like into his personal domain. Mm-hmm. And Linus discovers that Sal has is a writer and enjoys writing, but his typewriter and desk and stuff are in the closet. Yeah. Um, and Linus actually convinces Sal to move his desk out into his room, like under this pristine and like very um, picturesque window. And there's a lot of, it's just, it's very well portrayed in that Linus is like how much Linus cares. Like he's not supposed to form an emotional connection with these children. And he always tells himself that that's not what he's doing, but exactly what he's doing because he cares so much about them. And I, I've, I've, that scene was really, really good to read. It was, it was really satisfying. And I think Linus said exactly the right things. That's one of the nice things about Linus as a character, as someone who does, observe he kind of sits back and waits and listens before he he speaks or acts and i think because of that you know as a character he's able to say things more perfectly for the situation than maybe other characters would and um i just really enjoyed that about his characterization Mm -hmm. super well spoken and we get uncountable times where that is brought up and it's just like to the betterment of everybody yes yeah he makes a good team with them Do you want to talk about Chauncey next? Oh my gosh. Chauncey is, I actually, I was looking at Etsy for, I'll talk about a quote later that I actually want to put in my classroom for this upcoming school year. But Uh a lot of what I saw when I was looking for House on the Cerulean Sea on Etsy were like stickers and picture representations of Chauncey, (sighs) who is probably the least human-y of the magical youth in that he is a green animated slime with two round eyes that rest atop, like, tall stalks atop his body. And I think it's just so dang cute. His <laughs> one dream in life is he wants to be a bellhop. And how this dream unfolds in the book just warms your heart. It really does. Because at first, it's like, what? This is the oddest thing. Like, why of everything in the world would he choose to be a bellhop? And then as you go along, you learn, oh, well, he he used to hide under beds because he was always told that as a monster, that was his place and that he was here. His purpose was to scare children 
and other people. And, but that's not who he is. You know, he is just as bright and inquisitive a child as anybody else in this house. Um, and so when he is told that there's another way that he doesn't have to just be the assumptions people make of him because of how he looks, he can be anything. And in the pureness of his heart, all he wants to do is help people. And who helps people more than a bellhop? Mm-hmm. And later on in the book, when they eventually do go to town, um, Chauncey gets to speak with a bellhop and he wears, he, he gets given the hat from that bellhop and wears it between his two eyes or on top of his eyes. I don't remember, but it's just, I think the it's Im- between his yeah, socks. Exactly. And that image is just like perfect. Like I can see it right now. And like, if, I kind of want this to eventually become some sort of visual medium so that I can see somebody's interpretation of Chauncey either in like um, CGI or like animation. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. And it's just this, I think this is some of my own assumptions and prejudice coming out while I was reading. But like when we were first introduced to these characters, I think it's Talia first and then Theodore, who we'll talk about in a bit. And then I think uh, Fee And then I think Sal, and then I think later on we're introduced to Chauncey and then finally Lucy. But like, it was one thing when the the magical youth that we were introduced at the beginning of the book were human, and then we're introduced to Talia, who's like near human and in enough, uh, like fairy tale-esque stories that you're like, okay, I'm familiar with gnomes. And then you meet Theodore, who is... Is it a wyvern? A wyvern? I don't know how that word is pronounced. I always say wyvern. A wyvern. Um, who essentially feels a lot like a cat. Just mm-hmm. a very exuberant and loving cat who just really loves your attention. And I don't know, maybe it's more like a dog in that way where like just anything that you give him becomes the best thing ever. And I was thinking like, this is very odd because we can't talk to him. We can't hear his dialogue, but like neither could Linus. And then you meet, you know, Fee, who is uh, another forest sprite, um, like Zoe. And then it's just like, once you get to Chauncey and you're just like, this is too far. TJ Klune, come on. What? You want us to believe that like one of these children is just green slime. But like, as you get to know these characters, and I think this was very, very intentional, um, you see past who they're supposed to look like. And you just see them like in their, in their hearts. <sighs> and so I feel like I've grown as a, as a reader just from reading this yep. book with my own empathy. Yep. And I think it's really, it's a very queer centric theme in that, like you were just saying how we early on these magical youth that were more human that Linus was um, interacting with early on. And then why are all of these youth on this island? It's because they look different than normal humans, like 100%. Mm-hmm. Not like, sure, Lucy is the Antichrist or what um, people in the town might call him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, for all intents and purposes, Chauncey's just a child. The child that looks different than the other children acts mm-hmm. just like, like if it weren't for that nature versus nurture of his upbringing, he -hmm. he probably would have never done those monster type things. Mm -hmm. And it's just the theme of, um, being, not being able to accept and appreciate and empathize with people who are different than you, whether it's because of their appearance or their, um, I mean, (laughs) sexuality, we get into that a little bit later on in the book with Linus and Arthur, who we'll talk about here in a second. Um, 
but it's just I think it's I think it's a, one of the themes I enjoy the most in queer literature is making people aware of their um, what's it their their biases that aren't super known to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the ones they hold, even if like they don't think about them at the forefront of their mind. Yeah. Do you know what the phrase I'm thinking of? I don't, but I know Cognitive. the sentiment. Yeah. Co- is it cognitive dissonance? No, that's something no. different. Uh, it's this really common, like, literature or just idea. We have these biases that we hold, like, even... like even Unconscious as, bias. Yes, thank yeah, you. Yeah, oh that's gosh. it. It's really when you need it that it doesn't come. I know. <laughs> um, but unconscious biases where, like, that's, that person... I, I, I say person because I'm being respectful, but that being, that as some people in the town might say that thing that looks nothing like me, I can't mm-hmm. empathize with it. I can't understand what it is. So it's scary to me. Yeah. And this book, we see some growth from some of the characters in the town to start to accept these children as the children that they are and nothing more. I think next we have, you talked about fee and you talked about Theodore. Theodore. I wanted to talk about Theodore a little bit more because let's do it. I think you're right in the beginning, very like pet esque in his um, the idea of him, but as the story and the plot moves forward, we start to understand that no, Theodore isn't in, like an intelligent being who can have conversations with um, the children and Arthur and eventually Linus too. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's more of the idea that Theodore speaks more through his inflections and the tone of his voice than words. Mm-hmm. And the more you start to like learn that language, the more you start to understand that you can have a conversation with this wyvern, which I thought was really cool. And I think my one of my favorite features was like Linus's nervousness about meeting a wyvern for the first time because he read about it in the file and he's just like mm-hmm. scared of this idea of this dragon-esque being. All Theodore wants is a tiny little trinket of Linus's and Linus ends up giving him one of his buttons because there's a there's like a little um, button that he finds in the depth of his pocket. And Theodore loves this button more than anything, really. And throughout the novel, Linus gives Theodore like button after button and eventually, which is like super out of character and out of comfort for Linus, he Mm -hmm. decides, oh, this is my shirt that I don't need anymore and I'm going to give that. I'm going to give all the buttons on that to Theodore. Mm-hmm. And that shows, I think it's kind of symbolic in Linus giving himself over to this, mm. to these characters, right? Like we hear yeah. about Linus's one PJ set that he got as a reward for his right. service to Daikami. His and monogrammed Exactly. PJs. And there's just <laughs> such a big... Um, presence of Linus's body type and his clothing that I really liked that as like symbolism of Linus, like letting himself, um, letting his walls break down a bit and giving part of himself to the Island, even if maybe he didn't realize that's what he was doing. Yeah. And I think it's also very meaningful that Theodore is the first person who decides he loves Linus um, it's pretty unconditional right from the get-go once he's received that button and it just maintains there is like nothing that Linus could do then that would cause Theodore to dislike him like it's definitely unconditional love and it's almost like if this were a video game and we played as Linus each of these these magical youth 
would be a different level where you have to try to win them over one by one. And, you know, Theodore is the gateway to that with, I believe, Sal as the, like, the final boss. Amy, this is why I love why we're doing this podcast, because you (laughs) continually blow my mind with these analogies. (laughs) I love that idea so much. I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah, it's just very, it's very much like terrorist almost. Like, if you were to see it as, like, a staircase with each of these children being another rung, or that's a ladder, but like <laughs> step, yeah. step up the stairs into Linus accepting that he can be whoever he wants to be too. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. He, yes. He doesn't just have to be stuck as this, you know, like person who has negative feelings about himself, who has anxiety about the world, very strong social anxiety because he doesn't feel like he really wants to get close to anybody, nor does he feel like he wants more than he has. I think he feels like he doesn't deserve more. And so like with, as he gives himself to these children and to the island, and then they fill back in with themselves and their bright and their brightness and their their love and just their enthusiasm for the world, he sees himself differently too. And I think that's very, very clear by the time you get to the end of the book. Yep. And I think that transitions us very naturally into the last character. Well, I guess the last major character we'll talk about here, who is Arthur Parnassus. Mm-hmm. Um, because of what a pivotal role this character plays in Linus's arc. Mm-hmm. He is the um, master of this orphanage, and he's that burning secret that was hinted at in the um, slipcover of this book, because it mm-hmm. turns out not only is Arthur the master of this orphanage, the father of these children, we eventually, as readers and as Linus, discover and accept and appreciate um, he is also a phoenix, which is one of the rarest types of magical creatures. So rare that he believes he's the only one, mm-hmm. which is not, that is actually one of the things I was not expecting. Like I knew that there was, he was, I knew, I figured early on he was magical because there were all these sorts of like allusions to Linus Little seeing. indications. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I too was surprised by this and I know we had talked about like, oh, I knew a Phoenix once and then I, I know who he grew up to be and I think of him sometimes then I thought another, I thought the twist was going to go in a different direction. I thought he was talking about Charles Werner. I thought he was a Phoenix who's also, um, the person that we kind of see as the, the speaker for extremely upper management. At least he's the one who speaks the most. Um, and he's the one who has like this personal, not vendetta, but he's definitely extremely interested in Arthur and Marsyas. And that's why they have Linus go and check out. And he's like, he really wants to know everything. And I think he just, he wanted some information about his ex. Exactly. Oh my goodness. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted it, the intel. That's what it felt like. And I was just like, oh my gosh, Charles. Come on, Charles. Yeah. And also early on, Linus gets all these uh, folders about the people he's going to meet. He doesn't get Mm -hmm. one about Zoe because nobody knows that she's an inhabitant of the island, or they do when Mm -hmm. they are pretending they don't. Um, But the file on Arthur is the most minimal of them all. Like, he gets no information about that, and he takes great offense to that. Like, in one of his first reports... He kind of almost talks down to extremely upper management saying, like, this is extremely unprofessional. I needed this Mm -hmm. information to, um, like, do my job correctly. 
Um, yeah. And it's kind of, like you were saying, it's later figured out kind of like why they were being slow and not super forthcoming in their information in regards to Arthur. But I'm also really happy that TJ Klune decided to take that route because mm-hmm. we got to learn who Arthur was at the same pace that Linus did, which yeah. I really enjoyed. I did too. And I think we would have gone in with different assumptions if we had known right away, oh, he's magical. Oh, he's a phoenix. Oh, he too had been abused when he was a child. Like, I think we would have had different impressions of him. And so having this more organic pacing to get to know Arthur, especially because he is the love interest in the story, I think made all the difference. Mm -hmm. And it's not super clear early on that Arthur is also queer. And we learn, I think, in one of Linus's first trips back to town in his conversations with the postmaster, the post office worker, yeah, makes this him. like offhanded, horrible comment about how I, I'm going to bring it up because I think it's very important because this, excuse my French, happens all the time to queer people, but these people making assumptions about queer people and how it's always undoubtedly by people who are hateful brought mm. into this like deviancy. And like, oh, that queer out on that island with those kids, what could he be doing? And I'm just like, no, that's that's hard to hear and rough, but people think like that and people say things like that. So I'm also appreciating TJ Klune for not um, skirting that and not failing to address stuff like that. But it is our first indication that Arthur is queer. I had hopeful, I had hopeful details in my mind that I was like, oh, this could be construed as queer before that his eyes are lingering on linus the way he's still so i was like i i was i was picking up on some of the more flirtatious things and like just the the vibes in their scenes together um but it does it becomes a lot more apparent as we go without really ever forthright saying it and i just think Mm -hmm. it's beautifully they have a beautiful love story yeah and i agree with that and there's very much these small details throughout where we think about Linus like feeling a certain way when Arthur's talking to him or where Mm -hmm. the conversation's lingering between the two of them or Linus notices a special part about Arthur's outfit like his socks Mm -hmm. or his short pants or his t-shirt or his hair or things oh but he's not blushing it's just from the heat yes exactly But in the end, Arthur, it turns out, as we mentioned, is a phoenix. And I think the climax of that, when it's discovered, is, it's like also really like shiver chill inducing because Mm -hmm. extremely upper management, they're they're kind of starting to get in on Linus's frustrations with the lack of information. And they're Mm -hmm. also starting to get the hint that, oh, Linus is starting to feel connections to the children and to Arthur so they're just like oh we have to we have to give Linus the one piece of information that will make him understand why he can't make these connections like he has been with uh these people and what they do is they give him a key to um this cellar door in Talia's garden and Mm -hmm. there's been like spooky hints about this cellar door throughout the story it's like It has scorch marks along the edges and whatnot. So it's always been this presence that's kind of been looming in the back of our minds and Linus's mind. Mm -hmm. So when he gets this key, he kind of instantly knows what it might open. And he goes down into this, um, essentially what is a cage down there. And he sees that it's scorched and he 
starts to make these realizations as he and we as the reader do. And then Arthur appears behind him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we have a very kind of like heartbreaking, but also heartfelt scene in which I think what extremely upper management did had the opposite effect as they were attending on Linus, which I loved in the characterization of Linus. Like Mm -hmm. he was angry and he felt almost even more connected to Arthur in a way and like empathetic and sympathetic toward him. Yeah. Which he was definitely had more convictions about keeping the orphanage open. Like it it was the opposite of the intention from extremely upper management. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, now you'll know what Arthur really is. And yeah, yeah, I do know what Arthur is. He's a caring father who has trauma in his youth that is pushing him to be the best father that he can be. And like Linus says things like that should have never happened to you. This there should have never been a situation and something like that could have happened to you. And Mm -hmm. I like I just think about like, I, I think he's very intentional in how he's talking about this. He's not talking about it as, like, the queerness is the thing that is causing um, the adult figures in Arthur's life in his youth to be what is forcing him into this cage. It's his, mm-hmm. like, phoenix powers. But there's right. such a parallel to um, the trauma that queer youth endure. So I I like that, that it's not super coded in this traumatizingly like Mm -hmm. this story that's told in such an explicit way that it would be traumatizing but the themes are still there so somebody reading it might empathize with the fact that oh they're scared by arthur because he's so powerful he's so different so they try to lock him away and um yeah and do you remember exactly the catalyst that put Arthur into that position? Because I remember there was one, but I can't remember specifically what it was. I don't remember specifically what it was either, but I also think that it was the aftermath of it that was the most important. Because a lot of times in, in situations like this, whatever whatever straw breaks the camel's back is generally going to be small. And it's more of the buildup of you know, this intolerance from this other person who then feels the need to, to wrest control back and usually in an extreme way. And that's, that's the part of it where, you know, same with Sal, like, you know, he had endured all of these hardships as well. And then when he's struck and finally in his, you know, fright fights back, that's what gets him in trouble. And like, you know, it's, it's a horrible thing, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a small thing and the small things can have really large repercussions. Mm -hmm. And there's honestly so much I could talk on and on and on about these characters. And I I think what we should do now, I think we should start to wrap up the character discussion. So we should can have some time to talk about our specific things we wanted to. Yeah. I think the characters have all been really well written. Um, The only thing I wish there was more of was fee. Mm-hmm. I wish we had gotten more of Fee in the book because I just feel like I really don't know her. So that's yeah. something I feel like is lacking, but there's I, only so much time. I agree. Like, there are definitely some of the children felt more focal than others. Yes. Um, but I, I don't think that is... I still... I know that Fee is somebody who is very in tune with the forest, somebody who can um, kind of connect with the earth and with the island 
And mm -hmm. I, I did enjoy seeing the connection between Fee and Zoe because Zoe takes yeah. Fee on as kind of her um, ward and that Zoe's teaching her what it means to be a forest bride and how to grow yeah. trees from nothing. So, like, even if there was less, I still think there was something there, which I'm glad about. Absolutely. Yeah. So... I mentioned something earlier and I think for our kind of, this is, this is the time where we just get to talk about whatever the heck we want. Right. All right. Let's do it. And I want to bring up that first, I think this is like the first time where I actually laughed out loud and I was flipping through earlier when we did one of our breaks and I think I found it. So I'm going to read this passage from the book. It's on page 29. So really early on Linus is speaking with his neighbor, Miss Clapper after returning home from work. Um, and it's, I'm going to just read from where about where it starts. Miss Clapper is saying, My grandson is an accountant, very stable mostly. He does have a tendency towards rampant alcoholism, but who am I to judge his vices? Accounting is hard work. All those numbers, I'll have him call you. Linus says, I'd prefer if you didn't. She cackled. Too good for him then? Linus spluttered. I don't, I'm not, I don't have time for such things. Miss Clapper scoffed. Perhaps you should consider making time, Mr. Baker. Being alone at your age isn't healthy. I'd hate to think of what would happen if you were to blow your brains out. It'd hurt the resale value of the resale value of the whole village. I'm not depressed. She looked him up and down. You aren't? Why on earth not? <laughs> and at that point, I, that might have actually been where I was in the store. I laughed for like a solid 30 seconds. That whole like, why on earth not? It was just so well written and so funny and such a good buildup. And like, I think that passage alone gives you the sense of TJ Klune's like ease with comedy and like how often you might find yourself laughing while reading this. Yeah, it's it's got a great range of comedy and tragedy. Not tragedy so much as heartbreak, but yeah, that's a good that's a good moment. Thank you for sharing that one, Chris. Yeah. So, and what do you want to talk about first? Um, I know it's one of your, you had mentioned this, but my favorite lines from the book are also the one that you want to have in your classroom. Do you want to talk about that? Do you have, uh, I don't have it pulled up. I but do. do I have, have it marked in my book. I'd be happy to read it because like every time I read it, do. I get chills. So Ugh. I actually have the page marked where at the end, because it was easier to find where Linus re like re says this to the group mm -hmm. in his like plea. Essentially at the end of the book, Linus leaves and come like leaves to go back to Daikami to like plead his case for the island staying open, then returns because that's his home and that's where he belongs and that's where he wants to live out his days. But the children and Arthur are a little apprehensive because Linus left. Um, and he understands that they might not be so willing to accept them back into their hearts because they have that fear of rejection again, right? Like, what if he leaves again? So this is Linus pouring his heart out, saying a quote that stuck with him. And the quote was originally said by Sal in one of the students kind of class nights, almost like each week, I think one of the students gets to have a time where they have like open mic essentially. And this is what mm -hmm. Sal said at the first open mic that he, that Linus got to see. And then Linus repeats it because it stuck with it. And it is his, it is now Linus's reasoning for the decisions he made, which I thought was like very beautiful and really well done. So here it is. This is, I am 100%, I don't know how, but I'm getting this written in some way so I can hang it up in my classroom. I am but paper, brittle and thin. I am held up to the sun and it shines right through me. I get written on and I can never be used again. These scratches are a history. They're a story. They tell things for others to read, 
but they only see the words and not what the words are written upon. I am but paper, and though there are many like me, none are exactly the same. I am parched parchment. I have lines, I have holes. Get me wet, and I melt. Light me on fire, and I burn. <sighs> Take me in hardened hands, and I crumple. I tear. I am but paper, brittle and thin. Oh. And it's just, it's just an amazing way to kind of personify the human condition, I think. And it's yeah. such a great, oh my God, like I, my eyes are wet right now reading it again because of how much it stuck with me and how like much I loved it. Um, because I think it, it speaks to um, like humanness and how we're fallible and how we make mistakes and how they define us and they shape us. But it also speaks to um, kind of other people and how that, those mistakes and how those decisions and how our outward appearance is perceived by others. And it's just, there's all these like really big, huge ideas wrapped up in this perfect little speech. Yeah. Well said. Um, what made you connect to it? I think it's just, I really appreciated it on several levels. And one of it was just like the beauty of the, like the lyricalness of it it flows very nicely. And I just also really liked how, because this is a medium that's told with paper, it's a book and it's almost like, you know, we're talking about this book personified, you know? Oh my goodness. I didn't even think about that. (laughs) If you set it on fire, you know, if you, if you get it wet, it has a history written on it and like that gives it identity, but it's also more than just the words that are written down on it. And I think, it's beautiful uh, about books. It's beautiful about people. It's beautiful about a poem written down on a page. Like, I think on just so many levels, there's a lot to appreciate about that. And if I had read that poem outside of this book, like outside of context, I think I would find it still just as profound and moving. And I love that you brought it up, the physicalness of this book and those things. Because when I'm reading, I leave my book on the kitchen island so mm-hmm. it's always in the splash zone of my cooking. And I accidentally, pun- essentially punched a glass of water over on accident while I was cooking. And uh-huh. the book was part of the <laughs> the splash zone. So the bottom back part of my book, a little water warped. And it's just like, wow. <laughs> like now to think about it in the sense that like books and humans and just things in the world and how they're shaped and I don't know I really like that yeah (laughs) and it kind of grounds me almost yeah and I think it's what I don't know it's (sighs) so many feelings it's hard to put them into words it is and I hope I hope other people who are listening resonated with that too and I think you're supposed to I think it's like it's one of the moments in the book like it's it's literally word for word said twice in the book of how important it is first by Sal and then by Linus I think there were a few, there were, there were several moments in the book that are repeated twice. And like, that was one of the things that I liked a little bit less, um, where it was like verbatim, like, oh, well, she had said this thing and that's why this resonates now. And it was very true and very profound. And, um, maybe it's because of how I I didn't read this like super fast, but I read it quick enough and, Maybe if I had taken more time, I would have appreciated those refreshers. But at the time when I was reading, I was like, I know this already. I remember it from when the character first said it. 
Um, and I was like, trust your readers. But I, I do think this is part of what gives this book those more relaxed vibes. Like even if you're not, even if this is your book for fresh air where you're not reading it to get like the most sophisticated literature out of it, um, you know, it's, it's still, it's there to support you and prop you up and to help you out when you need it. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's sweet. And I think that this is the one, maybe not the only one, but one of the most well done times in the book where it is like, it's very meaningful in its delivery the second time. Like you understand Mm -hmm. its importance and like, you don't feel like you're being used as the reader. It's kind of like a payoff almost. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, I think that's what makes this moment just hit so hard both times it's in the book. Yeah. So do you want to tell us who your favorite character is? If you have one? Ah, it's, it's a tough call. Um, but I would probably say Sam, which might be an unusual choice, but I just think his arc, he grows so much as a character. Sam or Sal? Sal. Oh my gosh. It's my partner's name is Sam. So (laughs) that might be why it's in your head. I think that's why it's in my head. Um, but yeah, no, sorry. It's okay. Sal is my favorite character and he just has this, this great arc and he's a little dog and like, it's only brought out like his cuteness as a dog is brought out when he's at his most scared. And like, if that is not some (laughs) extreme level Mm -hmm. of like, self-protection you know no one would hurt a little dog and i just think the fact that he grows into such a more confident person and he he gets over his fear of daikomi through getting to know linus and knowing that linus is going to be there to like look out for them and that he's got family who loves him and wouldn't let anything happen to him and i think it's just him realizing that he's known and accepted and he also is the one who wrote the the beautiful poem mm-hmm, that I just read. That you just read. And I really liked about Sal the juxtaposition between him and his shifted form and him in his mm. like human form. Because mm-hmm. you're kind of led to believe like he's this big burly child, like strong right. and tall, and like there's such a like a um, difference between the two of them, almost like comically so, but not in a way that felt. Um, like, like haha funny. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And thinking about Sal and his growth, I think about the scene with him and Linus at the ice cream shop (gasps) and how kind of the ice cream paid the ice cream shop worker was being extremely rude to the children, refusing to serve them. Um, and that kind of fright causes, uh, Sal to shift, but then Linus takes him into the bathroom with his clothes and um, kind of talks to him and coaxes him and just like seeing their relationship and how um, well Linus kind of like comforts him in that time. I really yeah. enjoyed that. I did too. There's a lot of trust there. What is your favorite character? Who, who, are you thinking of the most after oh my this goodness. book is down? See, this is why I was excited to talk about favorite characters. <laughs> uh, my favorite character, without a doubt, is Lucy. Fair. I Very fair. 
actually loved what TJ Klune did with this character and how like over the top almost he is, but uh-huh. in like the most intentionally best way because Lucy is the Antichrist. So it's kind of yeah. like Chauncey in the sense that Chauncey was always told he was a monster. So he hid under people's beds and tried to scare them because that's all he knew. Like that's what he knew he was because that's what people told him. So mm-hmm. Lucy is the Antichrist. So he knows of himself as this all-powerful being that is supposed to bring about the end of days and destruction and death and um, blackness and whatnot. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of, like, just great humor in the way that Lucy kind of carries himself and talks. But he's also this, like, really loving brother to his siblings. I We're gonna, we're using this term family and brother. They're, like, they're, it's the found family. Like, in the end, yes. we realize that... Linus and Arthur are their fathers. <laughs> That's how it ends up. And these are their mm-hmm. children. So they're all brothers and sisters and whatnot. But Lucy with his brothers and sisters and siblings um, is this sort of like, I mean, they're all glue, but he's almost like, like the, I don't know, the tightest glue that binds them all together because yeah. he's like the adventure seeker and he's right. the music lover. And he's also the one, you brought it up earlier, but he has spiders in his head. And I I loved that as a description of, like, anxiety and depression, Mm. 100%. Like, almost... I took it literally. (laughs) Oh, that too. But I think of it also, like, PTSD, in a sense. That's very fair. Like, he probably has, like, in this magical sense, he probably has all these visions in his head of, like, maybe his father or, like, Mm. where he comes from. Or his upbringing that he can't forget. And some nights it's just too much for his brain to like contend with. And we see him one night, Ar- not Arthur, Linus is, he lives in like the garden, um, what would it, like garden, sh- not a shed, but like this guest house. Like in a the little, gar- little guest house. Yeah, in the garden. And at one night Linus is, just wakes up and his bed is floating in the air and he has no idea what's happening. And he thinks mm-hmm. one of the children is playing a trick on him. But we kind of get a sense of how powerful Lucy is because Lucy yeah. is asleep in his room in the house, which is far away, but he has the power to float Linus's bed in the guest house in the garden. So mm-hmm. knowing how powerful Lucy is and knowing what he's capable of and knowing that at no point in the book, does he use that power negatively? Mm-hmm. Like even in this nightmare, even in this time where he is the most uncontrolled he gets because he's asleep and he's having a nightmare and he can't really control it. He is still controlling it. And I feel like it's his love for his siblings and his father that is allowing him to, even in that time, be able to control himself. Yeah. And um, I just love the little details about him, like him loving music, him and Linus getting to bond over their love of records. And I really relate yes. to that because within the last couple of years, I've started collecting records because one of my, like one of my biggest parts of my identity is my love of music. And I, like records is like a physical manifestation of that love because everything's so digital nowadays. Mm-hmm. But I like I like hardback books. I like having a record. I can pop into the record pair and play while I'm making dinner or while I'm cleaning the house or whatever. So I really yeah. connected with Lucy in that sense too. I also just loved that Lucy's love of music is specifically from artists who are dead. And I think there's just something so beautiful about how, you know, he's so morbid all the time, but also like that is what, where his like greatest joy stems from. Mm-hmm. Have you, this is kind of tangentially related. Have you ever read Looking for Alaska? 
I have not. Because that actually reminded me the main character. I it's not it's not uh, like a queer book, but it's a super mm-hmm. good book written by. Um, oh my gosh, he wrote *The Fall in Our Stars*. John Green. Oh. Um, but the main character is obsessed with famous people's last words. Mm. And I had the very, I had a very, I don't know, like a very similar vibe between those two characters a little bit. And I liked that character and I like this character. So maybe, maybe they'd be friends. Yeah, maybe <laughs> probably actually. <laughs> um, but I also like just Lucy's protective. Yeah. He's also very protected cause I think he's the youngest. Yep. He actually, his bedroom is off of Arthur's bedroom. It's like a closet, but that's because Arthur wants him as close as possible because of these nightmares potentially happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think Lucy's afraid of being alone. Yes. Which is just such a, a quintessential six-year-old fear. And the fact that he has it, you know, this most powerful magical youth in the world... And it's so important that we know that he feels that way because it kind of keys you into he probably feels this way a little bit because he knows what he is and he knows what he ex- he knows what to expect from people knowing that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just love Lucy. I love all the characters, but I think Lucy was the one that's going to stick with me the most. Also, Linus. I love Lucy. <laughs> yes. Oh. And also, Lucy and Linus. Yeah. I thought of that straight away. I loved that. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And I was just going to say, I read this book. I finished it. I started playing um, A Wonderful Life, which is a video game, but I named my main character in it Linus. Aww. Because <laughs> of how much I enjoyed Linus in this book, too. <laughs> yeah. They they did their their uh, their their arc very well between the character development and the relationship development. What would you like to talk about next? Uh... I think we could are you do you feel ready to talk about some of the more general queer themes and topics yeah, found in the book? Yeah, for sure. Cuz we've talked a lot about found family. Mhm. Which and is Go ahead. It's the idea that sometimes coming out as a queer person means you lose your true family because of how they react and they respond whether they fully push you out of their lives or whether you just make the decision that their inability to like outright immediately accept you is not something that you want to be a part of. Like that's some people decide that for themselves and that's perfectly reasonable. But what we do as queer people is we find our family in people who share our experiences and our characteristics, which is I think a very profound idea. Yeah. I just have one qualm because you had said, that's a fun word, qualm. <laughs> um, you had said true family. Oh. And I do want to just differentiate that um, true family is very uh, qualitative. Yes. And it's based on our own uh, perspectives of that, but bio, bio family. That's a better way to put that. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, because like found family could be your true family. So yeah, I that is yeah. a very good point to make. Yeah. Um, but I mean... Linus finds his family, his his family on this island. He does, and he finds himself. And I think that that's what family does best is it brings out all of the good in you. And I think that it's so cathartic when Linus realizes that this is what he does, you know, what he who he is when he's around them. Um, and we also brought up um, in our discussions that 
the idea of having to hide who you are from the world is very mm. much a prevalent theme in this book, whether mm-hmm. it's Arthur um, in his Phoenixness, like it's it their queerness was never something that needed to be hidden, but the fact that he was a Phoenix was something that Daikumi wanted to hide. The mm-hmm. fact that this island existed was also something that they wanted to hide. Mm-hmm. So that's also a very prevalent theme throughout this book. Daikomi's true motives were also hidden, um, their own agenda. And I feel like there are parts of Linus too that he had kept hidden. Um, just because one of the things I noticed was Linus feels very different at the start of the book versus the very, very end. And there were times when I was like, this can't be the same character. But I think part of that is the distance in the narrative. We don't really get a, a glimpse of Linus fully the way that Arthur and the others do until maybe the very, very end of the book. And I think there's also something to be said about authenticity and how like we can be our authentic selves at different, you know, stimuli and situations. And it might not be the same version of ourself each of those times, but it's not necessarily like we're different people. You know what I mean? And so I feel like watching Linus just continue to watch him grow as the book goes on into accepting his authenticity and like showing that more, even if he does feel like a different person, I think it's in part because he changes and also because of that part he had hidden from himself. He finally lets that show like the sunshine coming out from the clouds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and speaking to that, he also accepts that maybe he deserves this happiness, which is something that as a child, sometimes I didn't feel like I did because Mm. of this thing that I thought was wrong about myself. So Mm. I, I enjoyed seeing that through in this book as well. Like him eventually coming to terms with the fact that, you know what? Screw him. I, I'm moving to this Island. This is, this is my family. This is, the life that I do deserve actually. And I liked that. Yeah. I like that too. One, I think we brought this up a little bit. One of the things I liked was that the characters sexualities were never really a plot point in, in Mm -hmm. like the sense that they were explicitly told to us or there was exposition about it. It was just like these characters were forming a relationship with these people in this way because of it. And not, mm-hmm. and we weren't ever told um, outright. It was like small details here and there, and eventually the coming together of these pairings that keyed us into it being true, which I yeah. liked. I liked the story being told that way. I did too, and I think the story being told this way helped bring out other truths. Like there, there is a time and a place where the main point of a story is to talk about the struggles of coming out or about being gay um, or queer. But in this one, the struggles was about how do you reconcile differences between people in this world? What does it mean when uh, some people are scared of this difference and shun it or more actively try to harm it? Um, How can you try to bridge the gap and, and create trust and understanding and empathy? And I think that this kind of story... It's one of the beauty, beautiest things about fantasy and fiction in general is that, you know, you can tell very strong truths if you talk about a fantastical matter. Like, this is about bigotry against magical youths. 
this is not bigotry against uh, queer people or black people or Jews. You know, this is this is about something that we don't really have to deal with here. Magical creatures, you know, magical beings and people. Um, but because they are different than us in very parallel ways, that theme comes through really, really strongly. And then you can apply it about being queer. Or you can apply it about being uh, another minority who's discriminated against on a day-to-day basis. And I think this story would not have been told so well if it had been more explicitly about about queerness. Mm -hmm. And that reminded me, you were bringing it up earlier about there were these things that kept being said, but I, I think there was one other thing that kept being said about how you change starts small, right? Mm, and mm-hmm. I think that was another important thing. I actually hadn't even written that down or thought about it until just now, which is why I love these discussions. Um, that was one of the passages I marked. Do you want to talk about it quickly? Talia said that you told her, in order to change the minds of many, you have to first start with the minds of a few. Mm-hmm. And that is brought up again and again, and it's a really important idea. Yeah. And we see it. We see it with, uh, you know, how change starts in the town with Talia talking to Helen, who turns out to be the mayor, who has a lot of of sway and power over, you know, what the people think in her town, the town of uh, Marsias. And, you know, it started with Linus giving a button, just a single button to Theodore for someone on the island to decide, Okay, I like Linus. He's good. And it turns out in the end, we didn't even know it. We were never told it. But Zoe and Helen end up in a relationship together. And I I actually loved that little detail just kind of coming out of nowhere. Like, not nowhere. It is hinted at. Like, it is addressed subtly throughout the novel. But I think... It's set up. Yeah, it is set up. But it's not belabored. Exactly. And I I think the nuance with which it was handled was very nicely done. And in one... I think it's a great way to end is like, I actually really enjoyed the epilogue. I thought it, it kind of, mm-hmm. it's that perfect like bow on top because you're just like, Agreed. okay, the book ended, but what's happening now? And I think it jumps about a year later and we see where the family mm-hmm. is at, where Linus is at with his relationship with Arthur, how the children are getting along and how that sort of stuff is going. And it's just, it, and then it's really good found family just you know seeing how you can expand that i think yeah beautiful bow on a beautiful book and the last thing that happens as we are brought to the end of the book is that helen tells arthur and linus about a new child that they could potentially adopt on the island because they are in need Mm -hmm. of a a magical child is in need of a home. And I just think it's so perfect in that without thinking Linus just says, yes, we'll take him. Uh, how soon can he get here? And I just, it, it shows you exactly who Linus has become. Yeah. And I think too, what Helen, when, when Linus is like, what's his name? And Helen's like, I just love that that was your question. Oh my gosh. That, yes. What is he? Yep. It's so well done. Mm-hmm. Mm, chills. Is there anything else you think you want? to bring up before we move on to our closing this book made me cry yes it made me cry it made me (laughs) laugh it made me angry but for the correct reasons yeah i felt very like satisfied i felt like justice was conveyed and i thought it was done in in ways that were not making mistakes or if mistakes were made they were like gently reprimanded and then a better way was found 
Ah, oh, this is a role model of a book. Yeah, I we're starting off very strong, which I am very happy about. We are. Uh, so, yeah, The House in the Cerulean Sea. You should read it if you haven't. But if you have read it, I hope you enjoyed our discussion of it. If you have an interpretation of it that we missed or something that you interpreted differently than us, feel free to uh, send us an email. Let us know. Yeah, and I'll stitch that email in at the end of our podcast because we don't actually have an address yet. We don't. This is so fresh. I know. I We, we were just so excited to talk about this that our first, we're going to kind of like fall into a rhythm in a cadence Mm -hmm. so please bear with us as we discover who we are just like the characters in this book did yeah who what this podcast is rather (laughs) but it's been so fun talking to you about this yes i was i've been so happy or excited for this now i'm very happy that we got to do it me too um so thank you everybody for listening to our very first episode of the big gay book club it's called the big gay book club because we hope that's what it starts to feel like um we're actually going to let you know what we're going to be reading next here in a minute um our episodes are probably going to come out on a like a more than two weeks basis like maybe sometimes two weeks maybe sometimes three weeks generally a month or so depending Mm -hmm. on what we're reading and how short it is in our time. Like right now we're on summer vacation. Well, I am. I'm on summer vacation from teaching. So we're going to have a lot of time to read and chat and record. But that might not be true come the dredges or the depths of winter. So (laughs) you'll have to bear with us. But I foresee this extending. So you can look forward to many future episodes. Yeah. Uh, This book uh, ended up being, I think it's like a... It's not quite YA. It's definitely fantasy, yeah. maybe fantasy adult story, um, definite magical realism happening. Um, but we're also planning to read uh, shorter graphic novels uh, as well as longer books, uh, genres, probably within the speculative fiction realm or the realistic fiction realm. Um, all of it having to do in the LGBTQ plus space. So um Yeah. Do you want to talk about what we're going to read next? Yeah. So we actually had a few ideas, but we realized that we're both really infatuated by the television slash book series, well, graphic novel series Heartstopper. And the second season comes out on Netflix on August 3rd, which is about three weeks from the time we're recording this episode. And mm-hmm. I'm already part way through my reread of the series, and I actually... I'll be reading it for the first time. I got Amy all four volumes for her birthday? I don't know anymore. It's yeah. definitely not your... It was not your birthday, but I was just like... I'm. It was a beautiful anytime exactly. gift, and I really appreciated it. And now I have all four, and they make a rainbow when you I look know, at their spines. I love them. Ugh, They're just... Perfection. Yes. So expect that of our second episode. We're going to be reading the first two volumes if you want to read them and be prepared. You're also welcome to send us any topics or questions you want to that email uh, that I'll be providing at the end so that you can maybe be a part of our next episode. We might even have guests in the future. Like it's going to be Chris and I, um, but we might have the opportunity to bring in guests every now and then to help talk about some of our new favorite books with us. Perhaps my partner or perhaps a friend or a um, 
somebody that you know from your streaming endeavors. Do you want to? Yeah. Do you want to? Pl- this is this is the perfect place. Do you want to plug yourself to our listeners? Sure. I uh, my stream name is Jess Spellior. It's spelled J A S P E L L L. Nope. That's <laughs> <laughs> Jess Spellior. Uh, and uh, we'll have it in our, our liner notes for this episode. Uh, but you can find me at twitch.tv slash Bellior. Um, and I tend to stream about twice a week. Sometimes I'll play video games. Sometimes I'll do music. Uh, sometimes we'll do some writing on the stream. Uh, we had a story writing stream once or I'll be trying to write some original songs. And yeah, she's been exciting things. She's been making Legos recently. <gasps> I've been building Legos. She's been playing a very cute game called Little Gator Game. Uh-huh. Um, I I hang Looking out forward to Dave the Diver. I hang out there as much as I can. So I used to stream, but I don't anymore. That now that I'm a teacher, there's just a lot of gray area with that. So I decided to forego it. But you can find me a lot hanging out at Jess Bellier. I'm actually a moderator of her channel. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll probably be creating a social media account on one of those socials in the near future for our podcast, but it's not existing yet. So look out in a future episode for more information on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think that's it. Thank you so much, everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And I feel like I'm obligated to say it. If you enjoyed our podcast, perhaps consider leaving us a review on whatever podcast service you are listening on. Could be very helpful for people to um, find us and start listening just like you got to do. Share it with your friends. Uh, Start a book club with us. Yes, please. (laughs) Read these amazing books that we're going to be reading. Sometimes we'll be rereading things we want to talk about them. Sometimes we're both going to be reading things for the first time. Um, But yeah, read these awesome books. Thank you for everything today, uh, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. It was amazing to talk to you, Amy. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.